In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Tower of Ivory, pray for us. St. Valentine, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So this first talk that I'm bringing to you tonight is titled Today's Catholic Culture. Uh, and just to note, I use a lot of examples. They may or may not apply to you. They may or may not apply to people that you know. But it's just me sort of taking a, it was sort of a big topic when I really sat down and tried to put it together. Uh, and there's a lot that can go into it. So I tried to synthesize my, my observations as a, as a layman, as a seminarian, and now as a priest, and give you kind of, I don't know, my sort of take on, on what we're going through right now, at least through my eyes and as I see it. If we want to take a look at our Catholic culture, we should begin with what culture actually is. Uh, what it, we see is that culture, it always involves a set of traits. Right? It's something that we share. Uh, you can't have a culture with someone if you don't share anything, if you're disconnected. Uh, it's sort of at the bare minimum, a culture shared land. They occupied the same space together. Uh, and people share things within these cultures because within cultures we have commonalities. There's these deeper connections that we make with each other and that we make with tasks that we make with uh, whatever is important within the culture. There's an interweaving of the fabric of every single life within a culture. Uh, and every fabric right, is made of material, individual strands that come together to form something bigger than it itself is on its own. Uh, these different strands are all tied to the word culture. Uh, for culture is the root word of a lot of things that we do in our daily living. We can talk about that cult within culture. Uh, to talk about cult is to talk about worship. Uh, that is, what group in a culture does, uh, does the culture give worship to? Right? What deity, what gods do they have? Do they know the one true God? Right? Uh, that's all tied in with, with culture. And you can see uh, how that worship would have affected the daily lives of those around them. You can go to look at archaeological evidence. Uh, it affected everything, uh, their dress, their language, their manners, their values, how they decorated things, how they set up their villages and cities and so on and so forth, and so much more. To discuss cultivation, Right? that same cult from culture, was to share information on growing crops, discussing how do we provide food, how do we provide for ourselves, how do we provide for our families, how do we build up the cities or the spaces that we are living in. Available resources always had a direct effect on dress, on diet, on buildings. Right? You, if you don't have the materials, you're not going to build with them. It makes sense. To converse with someone who's cultured, it's to exchange ideas with someone who we see as being you know, refined, maybe intellectual. Uh, cultured people are those who have ideas that run deep and that can get to the heart of matters, and they're usually well-spoken when they do. The way people carry themselves, or they handle situations, or they interact with others, the morals that they have, this all reflects how people were raised. Cultures that take great care in children they instill these manners. They instill respect within them. 
uh, and they, they give them this knowledge, this intellect uh, that they carry on. They want them to learn what they themselves have known, right? All of these things, they're all tied into culture. And so today's Catholic culture in the Northeast is sort of a funny topic because of all the ways that we can take a stab at it. For there are many aspects that we can look at. I could spend the rest of the talk sort of giving grievances about different things, uh, you know. Uh, but what I would like to do is just identify some problem areas that affect our Catholic culture um, because there are different problems in different spheres that we encounter in our secular culture that we live on, right? Secular culture, kind of the big bubble. Catholic culture, sort of a smaller bubble. Uh, and we see that the Catholic culture, at least in my view, is sort of growing smaller and smaller, right? That bubble is kind of getting less and less uh, as the bigger secular culture tries to move in. We can see the secular influence in politics, government, uh, economy, business, finance, trades, pop culture, you can see it too with some of the language that they're using, like cultural competence. Uh, we find this in healthcare, small communities, media, social media, news outlets, sales, uh, inheritance, law, daily interactions, right? The list goes on. Culture touches absolutely everything. Uh, there might be Catholics out there in some of these fields, but uh, the Catholic influence seems to just be a little smaller than it once was. Either it's through ignorance or malice, right? You can't always tell the difference between the two. Um, that's between the, in the individual and God. But those externals, right? We can look at the externals. What do we see? Do we see Catholic culture making a difference today? And that's kind of the question. Uh, to go through some of these, Catholics in politics, they seem to sort of suffer a sort of schizophrenia that is in the literal sense, like split thinking. Uh, they think that they can be Catholic, they can say they're Catholic, and then, right, do things contrary to the faith, or hold views that directly oppose what we believe, uh, what Jesus has handed on to us himself, uh, right? So we find some of them who say that they're Catholic, but then they vote for policies that are pro-death, uh, and, well, they, they want to think that they can have, uh, they can think two different and contradictory ways, uh, but, right, law of non-contradiction. Uh, we have to figure out which way is the proper way. Our government seems to be catering to sort of a hostile minority uh, that's intolerant of other ideas than their own. Uh, no one can really hold different opinions anymore, in the, at least in the public sphere and, and within the government, because uh, right, they just get attacked. And it's scary. It's scary if you have an opinion that's different than those around you. Uh, you know, you want to feel safe, so naturally many people don't speak up. Many people don't really say what's on their mind. Uh, and anything different or against the status quo will just not be tolerated by this, this hostile minority. Our economics are built on consumerism, uh, not on the goodness of the human being, as someone being worthy of love and respect and being made in the image of God. We're kind of numbers, right? We are who, what we consume. We are what we buy, how much we get, and what we own. B businesses, they, they love this model of economics. And some of them, especially today, they find it easier to lie or at least stretch the truth to make money. Uh, one of my professors in seminary, when he was teaching us ethics at the uh, philosophical level, you know, he was a teacher at BC, he would say that the, he would ask the kids questions in his ethics class over there in the business, from the business major, say, is it okay to lie to sell your product? And every single hand would go up. Yeah, it's okay to lie, right? 
Uh, and then the teachers from the other business classes, they would go to him and say, why aren't you teaching our, our kids ethics, right? Why don't they know business ethics? And he'd say, well, I have them for, what, three hours each week, and they have you for all these other hours. They've been brought up in this culture, right, in this society that says that lying is okay to get ahead. It's really, there's not much you can do at that level. Uh, it's sort of already ingrained in them. And to think that this one class is going to change that, it's, not, it's possible, but it's not necessarily the case. Uh, finance is no longer strictly tied to production. Uh, it's where we get that inflation from, partially thanks to President Nixon, who uh, took us off the gold standard. That really hasn't helped us. Uh, the trades are suffering because of American greed, wanting easy jobs that give lots of money. Uh, I've been to Kenya, and this seems to be the, the, at least the, uh, the trend among younger men. Um, they don't want to go into farming. They want to go into banking, right? They don't want to produce something for their country because that's hard. It takes a lot of work. You know, you're dependent on weather. You're dependent on all these extra factors. But banking, you put your suit on, you go into the bank, right? Uh, you don't have your hands dirty, at least with, with dirt from the field. You might get your hands dirty in another way if you're working in a bank. But uh, we see a little bit of this too, the same sort of trend among our youth. Uh, I've been, I moved into the rectory in Sheffield and it was sort of, okay, I'll, I'll just say it, it was kind of a dump, right? And it needed a lot of work, a lot of attention. Uh, and trying to find contractors for that has been so difficult. Uh, and from what I hear, it's only going to get harder. Our youth aren't as interested in trades as they used to be. They don't want to produce something to use their hands to make uh, or refine anything. Uh, the next thing I see secular society moving in is pop culture. Uh, I remember I had watched one of the Mission Impossible movies and it had some reference to the Bible, uh, the book of Job, that was kind of like their secret passphrase. And then I tried to think about this. How many modern movies reference the Bible at all? Right? How, how much, uh, how many, what's the last movie where you saw where there was some sort of biblical reference and, and not just writing it off, um, but something where it was kind of integral and you had to know something about the Bible to really understand the point of the movie. I, I sat for a long time thinking and I couldn't really come up with anything. Maybe it's just the movies I was watching. I don't know. Uh, but I think that is absolutely a trend. Right? The Bible is not mentioned anymore. The faith is not mentioned as much as it should be. Uh, movie stars love taking the Lord's name in vain. But religion is either ignored or it's depicted as something for the unenlightened, right? Uh, even though we know that without God, there is only darkness. Cultural competence, it's this phrase that, um, especially in the healthcare field, they'll use to say, oh, I have cultural competence. I know, you know what this, this person is going through. I know what culture they come from and what they value. But it usually means nothing with religious values, right? usually used to just say, oh, I care about you, but uh, just not in kind of the religious way. You know, they might try make a half uh, concerted effort to get you a priest or uh, if you're some other religion, whatever uh, religious leader you have. But in the grand scheme of things, doesn't really seem to play out. Uh, I saw this with uh, during the shutdowns when I had to go and my parishioners, right there, they're dying, some of them on their deathbeds. And what do they need? They need the sacraments. They need the Christ's strength and his healing in those moments. And to be turned away by hospitals, right? to, to say that, you know, you can't uh, come in here. Uh, was, uh, at the time, I had a ponytail and wear the cassock. They wouldn't mess with you as much. They didn't really know what, you know, what was going on there. 
but uh, but still, they would give me a hard time about it. And it's they've called for a priest. You know, God is more important in these moments uh, than you know I, whatever disease I might possibly give them, even though they're you know already on their way out. Uh, which brings me to healthcare. Uh, even though it was started by re- the religious as a public work, it's now been commercialized. It's all about what insurance will pay for and not about necessarily what's best for the patient. Uh, hospice especially has been on my mind as of late. Uh, its roots were Catholic. It started off as a very good movement. Uh, but hospice does not respect the dignity of humans anymore in letting them keep their wits and their rational thought. Uh, let me explain. So I've seen this more and more as a priest, and it should trouble all of you, uh, all of you who might be worried about getting older or getting sick or what have you. Uh, when a woman asked to see a priest in one of the local hospitals, she said she wanted to receive the last sacraments. And so I immediately went to the hospital. Right? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't leave this woman just to, to be there on her own. Uh, when I got there, I got there right after they had given her uh, the last round of pain medications. Right? And so uh, this woman who had asked for me 10, 15 minutes before was completely out of it. She was like zombified. You know, this big... Big black figure walks in the room across the bright hospital colors and, and all the bright lights, and she can't even focus on me. Right? Her eyes are going sort of all over the place uh, they, because, of, of course, what's going on there. Uh, the healthcare field is concerned about lawsuits. They're concerned about unhappy patients. And if you, you know, give them a little bit more than you maybe should in pain medication, then it keeps them quiet. Uh, so uh, that's a major, major problem especially when you factor in the sacraments to it. Uh, the Holy Eucharist can only be, be received by those who are rational. That's why we have to wait till the age of seven or eight uh, for children to receive their first Holy Communion. And so the last thing that that woman needs is to either aspirate on Holy Communion, you know, have it go down, our Lord go down the wrong pipe, or for her to you know, spit out our Lord. Um, and so that meant I couldn't give her viaticum. I couldn't give her all the sacraments that she had just asked for 15 minutes before. The other issue is, you know, I can give her an apostolic pardon, which is good, but there's always, there's what God does and what he offers to us, and there's the human response. How much do we create with God? And someone who's out of it, uh, you can ask, maybe their heart was in it before, right? But your your priest is really erring on mercy when he provides the sacraments to them. Uh, and it's not giving the comfort that it could give to the person if they had had their mental faculties, if they had been, uh, you know, fully cognizant and understood the sacrament of confession, understood, you know, that it is a priest before them. Uh, Because what if, you know, just what if she had special instructions for me for her funeral, right? What if she had a last request? Well, I'll never know, right? She was was drugged too highly uh, for me to get any of that out of her. Uh, So this, this false healthcare practice, it's going to affect us all. Uh, and it's technically illegal, falling kind of under euthanasia. They'll push it very, very far. Uh, and as long as it goes unchallenged, we're going to see this happen more and more. Um, I've had elderly uh, parishioners come up to me, especially kind of several years ago when uh, the euthanasia bill was more on their minds, and you're saying, like, Father, I'm very concerned about this, and as they should be. Right? It's no longer you go to a doctor to be healed, but you have this sort of darkness looming in the back of your mind. What else could they do? Right? And that's not... That's not why the medical profession is there. They should be there to help, to heal. Um, so 
medicine in this way has been interfering with the practice of religion, and it's happening more often. Uh, small communi communities tend to like to be together, but my question is, where is the faith? Our celebrations on the Sheffield Town Common included, uh, during the month of December, a politically correct rearranging of Christmas songs, the more inclusive of those who don't celebrate Christmas. My question is, if you're not interested in celebrating Christmas, why do you have this gathering around Christmas time? You know, it, it's just, uh, it's a little bit beyond me, right? But that's how much pressure is there to, to not offend anyone, right? To, to try to include people, even if they're not, even if you have a celebration and you want to bring them into that. Uh, it's sort of like a shame almost. You're ashamed that we can celebrate Christmas together uh, in, instead of, uh, you know, just being, being proud of who you are as a Catholic. Uh, and wanting other people to learn this truth about Jesus Christ and about the birth of the Savior for all of humanity. Uh, the media pumps out thousands of hours of entertainment, and most of it comes with the same anti-Christian messages. And it's not so much fun when you sort of delve into these movies and kind of look at uh, what they're telling you. You know, who is it that has the wisdom in the movies? It's usually someone with some sort of dysfunction, right? Or someone who uh, just completely goes along with the current political agenda. And that's telling you something. It's saying, oh, we should look up to this person, that this person's wise, even if they're saying things that are against human nature. Uh, so we have to be very careful. Even something that seems fun and, and doesn't really matter, uh, subliminally, you know, what's going on? What is this telling us, and how does that influence us? News outlets are terrible for what they're doing in selling news. And if we wind it, wisened up, we would stop consuming it. Uh, we would stop taking in their viewpoints just for ourselves because they get paid, right? They get paid for all those views that you give. And the more views you give, the more people they have watching, uh, the more money they get. Uh, and that's kind of the, why it is set up the way it is. If they can trigger an emotional response in you, you're more likely to tune in, even if it's a negative emotional response. So they're conditioning us to, to want to see what the news is saying. You know, what's the next story? Uh, what's the next breaking thing? Uh, sales, uh, I've gone over a little bit of this before, but it's uh, mostly about manipulating your perception of what you need. Uh, brands have been starting to change their tactics a little bit. Uh, they've been going for uh, something called micro-influencers. So people who have uh, like a fan base, maybe they have a thousand followers to you know a half a million followers. They're going for them because if this person endorses a product, guess what? They have all these potential loyal customers that will listen to this one voice. Uh, so companies are, are paying attention to what we're looking at, to what we're consuming, uh, to what matters to us. Uh, inheritance, I've gone over this in, in talks before, but not with all of you here. And inheritance is no longer Catholic, the way we do it in this country. Uh, so the notion of equality doesn't make sense when you sort of start to figure this out a little bit more and delve into what inheritance means. Uh, so let's say, you know, a father had three children. Let's say two of them have big families and one of them just never married, right? Uh, well, wouldn't it make sense that the ones with families would get a little bit more of the inheritance to support them, right, to help them grow their families? And then the one who's just by themselves, you know, they have enough, of course, to, to help out with their daily needs, but their needs are objectively less than you know, a family of seven kids, right? Uh, the way inheritance used to be was that the oldest child would inherit everything and they would try to figure out this balance, right? Who needed what? 
And think about what that would do. Uh, you know, we've probably all lost loved ones here. Uh, what would that do for family communications, for us getting along with each other, if we didn't have to worry about, you know, oh, well, I need my fair share, right? This all has to be equally doled out. Wouldn't you be nice to your older sibling, right? Or wouldn't you uh, want to be liked by your younger siblings if you are the one who has to decide on that? Uh, so the law has really, um, uh, around inheritance, has put families at odds. And it's one more way that kind of separates us now. Law has always been an issue in the United States, at least whenever it meets religion, or I should say confronts religion. Uh, civil law should serve its citizens, as the government should serve its citizens. Uh, but laws shouldn't be used to rule citizens in more aspects of their lives than they have a right to. Lawmakers have been seeing citizens as more of a, a liability that has to be controlled uh, than people who should be helped to flourish, to reach their maximum potential, to grow society, to grow culture, to, to, give, to build something good and big together. Uh, something to think about is we have this opioid crisis, but what's really being done about it? Uh, another question that you could ask yourself is if there is this crisis, why is it that more drugs are becoming legal? I remember when I was growing up, they always had these uh, banners right, on, the, on the highway, those signs that say, you know, marijuana, the, the gateway drug, right? it kind of starts off everything else. Well, and now it's legal, and I, I traveling to little old Sheffield through Route 7, I think there are five at least. I'm probably missing some too, but at least five pot shops right, that, that you drive by, and it's all New York plates, Connecticut plates, um, and... But if you look at marijuana, if you look at an alcohol too, right, the active ingredient marijuana is THC. And what is that? It's a depressant, right? It keeps people sort of dulled and dulled down. Uh, and why is it that the government seems to be, you know, okay with these, these drugs that sort of lower our consciousness, make us a little sleepy, uh, make us uh, not really as active or aware? It's probably because if they took away caffeine, you know, all of America would revolt. But... Uh, you know, it's interesting to think about why are they doing what they're doing? You know, always ask why, always try to follow where is the money in this. And you can usually get some, some sort of uh, answer out of it. Uh, and even thinking about our culture, just me walking around as a priest in clerical attire. Uh, people might be nice and respectful, but I almost never get a praise be Jesus Christ you know, or, or something along those effects. Uh, as a seminarian, I remember walking into a post office with my summer pastor and both of us were in clerics. A woman asked us if we were. I'm like, oh, no, we're, uh, we're, we're Christian, Roman Catholic specifically, right? But to think that she had never seen a Roman Catholic priest before, just walking around. Uh, recently, it was my birthday, and I was given a cake that said, happy birthday, not Reverend Frank, but River and Frank, right? <laughs> so I don't know whether the baker thought they were making a cake for a hobbit, or what, right? But it certainly, they weren't, certainly weren't thinking of making one for a priest. Uh, and, and on a sadder note, uh, when I was in clerics, I was hit on by a random woman. And it's like the level of ignorance, right, is just absolutely astounding. Uh, someone who has no idea what the priest is, what his mission is in life, how he's supposed to live his life. And it's either that she is that ignorant or evil. Right? You can't, can't always tell what it is. Uh, but there are many people out there dealing with businesses they don't understand to call me father, um, and they just don't get it. It's wild. 
uh, it's wild and it's even less civil and less Catholic. Uh, so seeing these types of situations over the past few years, it makes me realize that in a, in a big sense, it's the clergy that has lost the Catholic culture. Uh, that priests, we haven't been making ourselves known. Uh, so guess what? That, that old saying, out of sight, out of mind. You know, why is it that I'm fused for a Mormon? Right? Because they haven't seen priests in such a long time. Uh, and, and how sad is that? Uh, people forget about us. They need, they need these reminders that Christ is still alive in the world. He still gives you priests so that you may find his presence in this world. And what a great gift is that. So that's a little said about a lot of issues in secular society. And if I had to find kind of a trend going through a common thread throughout all of it, it would be something along the lines of uh, not Catholic, anything but Catholic. And we should, and what more should we expect from secular society uh, since it's the culture that we live in, since our own Catholic culture seems on many levels to have failed or that bubble seems to have gotten smaller and smaller. Um, without the good influence of God upon society, through us Catholics, uh, the ones that should know him, that should be promoting him, then society is left in darkness. Uh, it's left in turn uh, to darken the lives of its own citizens and make our job harder. Um, so I think the condition of our secular society is a result of uh, a weak Catholic culture among ourselves, among, and it's not just like us here in this community, it's broad, right? It's, it's all across the United States, it's all across different parishes, uh, different priests, religious communities, uh, just go across the board, it's, it's a shrinking bubble. But how does our Catholic culture fare against this wave of secularism? You know, how do the two meet? Uh, in particular, what's the response been from our hierarchy? And I would say that our Catholic culture in the neck of our woods it hasn't been strong enough to resist these secular ideas. And it's not because of the weakness of Catholic thought. Right? We, we have 2,000 years of built-up Catholic thought, Catholic philosophy. Uh, you can read any of the church fathers, absolutely heavy hitters um, in, the, in the mental realm. Uh, there was uh, a man who critiqued uh, Christianity with many, many points. Uh, his name was Chelsus. And Origen, right, early church father, he just dissected his arguments point by point by point, didn't let Chelsus get away with anything, right? So we have this great intellectual tradition as Catholics, uh, but how often are we, you know, really aware of it? And if we're not aware of it, if we're not trying to really build ourselves up, then we risk being just a Catholic social club uh, where we don't take the light of Christ, that we, we don't bring it to others, um, but we leave it in, in the church, or we leave it when we, you know, go back home, or we leave it in the church when we go back home on Sundays. Um, that's even if Catholics are smart enough to be going to church on Sundays. Uh, remember that word culture. We use that root word for almost every aspect of our lives. Worship, sustaining life with food, pursuing knowledge. A question we have to ask ourselves is if we have made God the center of our lives with our Catholic faith. Our response, uh, let's go over the hierarchy's response, but our response uh, as church hierarchy, I think, has been too little too late in a lot of these different areas of society. You know, why is it that mass attendance numbers are down? And I really, spending a lot of time thinking about it, I think it's a lack of love. Uh, I'll see people who, they love sports, they love seeing their, their kids play in sports, they love their jobs, they love their free time, they'll show up an hour early 
to sports practice, right? Just to practice. They'll, they'll be there and they'll be all ready to go. And these are the same families that'll show up five, sometimes 10 minutes late for mass, right? Where is, where is the love for God in that? It seems like they love sports more than they love the Lord. And they're, and they're still there and they're still going. But you can also see uh, another sort of trend. I was talking with one of my friends from, um, from one of my uh, past parishes and he was saying that since the, the shutdowns, everyone's sort of, I don't know, gone, moved down one step. So the people that you saw every week, you know, the really the, the staunch ones, they're kind of now the Christmas and Easter Catholics. And the Christmas and Easter Catholics, you don't see them anymore. Right? It's unfortunate, but uh, right, where is, where is the love? And in these instances, it seems like fear outweighs the love that we as Catholics should be having for God. I also blame the clergy uh, about causing this sort of brain drain on, on Catholics uh, who no longer seem to know the content of faith. Uh, yes, there are a lot of people out there uh, who are you know, very good about reading things and keeping up on it, and, and they know their faith in and out. They remember their Baltimore Catechism, right? But, uh, you know, as St. Thomas Aquinas said, you cannot love what you do not know. The more you know about someone, the more you can love them. Uh, the more you know about God, the more ways you can sort of access him, right? The more ways you have to love the Lord himself. Uh, and isn't that incredible? It's like married couples who have been together for a very long time, uh, right? They sort of live a little bit more in each other, right? They, they see more of each other. And there's more, they always find out, you can tell the couples that are still madly in love because they always find out something, they learn something new about the other time, right? And they always want to learn more about the other. And we should have that with God. We should always want to learn more about God. One of the munera, or the offices of priesthood, is that of teaching. And part of the problem, I think, of a weak Catholic culture is that many of the, the priests, uh, we, we haven't given you that culture. We haven't given you this knowledge of God that we should have been giving you. You, know, you can... Uh, look at other sort of uh, cultures or religions like Muslims. They can tell you what it is that they do as Muslims. They might be clueless as to the reasons why they do those things, but they know who they are, right? They know their identity. Uh, we as Catholics, we sort of seem to lost, if we haven't lost what we do, we've lost why, right? And, and many times we've lost both of them. That's why you can talk with uh, certain parents about CCD and they'll say, uh, to their children, you know, I'm sending you to CCD because I had to do it as a kid. Now you have to do it too. It's like, well, why? Right? You should be sending your child there because you want them to learn about God. You want them to be able to love God and, and find out more about his ways to live a good, holy life and end in heaven. Uh, you, you don't want to send them there just because you had to do it and it was terrible and you want, you know, you, you like inflicting suffering on your children. That, that, sh that should not, absolutely not be the reason why you're sending them off to CCD. But all these failures in culture, uh, those areas that I listed off, um, you know, are due to individual Catholics who have not done their part to promote Jesus Christ and his church, right? And I'm foremost critic of, of the clergy in this. Um, there, I was talking uh, a little bit earlier with someone, and, and you know, I said there's a saying that if the priest is holy, that the people are going to be good. Right? If the priest is good, people are going to be okay. The priest is okay. People are going to be evil. If the priest is evil, it's not good for anyone, right? It keeps getting worse and keeps going down. Uh, it's those examples that we see, uh, that we should see, 
and they should be, uh, you know, uh, really edifying us, uh, lifting us up and, and bringing us to God. In many parishes, among, among older pastors, uh, the model of the priest that they use is that uh, the priest should sort of, I don't know, uh, get himself out of a job, right? that he should uh, give the laity uh, all these things that he should be doing. And at a glance, it sounds kind of nice, like, you know, yeah, yeah, lady, you're getting out there. You're doing stuff. Go you, right? But what happens when this stuff is really, well, it's kind of a priest's job. You know, it's kind of the job of, of a father. Uh, as a priest, I can just go and walk into a room with someone, and if they're having a tough time, they pour out their heart to me. Right? They're not going to do that to you know, a random uh, Susan from the parish, right? Uh, because it's different. They don't know her. She's not father to them. She's not part of their family, where a priest is in a certain sense, part of all the families of the sheep that are entrusted to him and even beyond. Uh, so it's an absolutely incredible job. But uh, the, the priest is called to be a shepherd. And shepherds, they shepherd their sheep. Sheep aren't called to shepherd. Shepherds are called to shepherd, right? Uh, so those who have been given this role, they have to fulfill that role. And we shouldn't be expecting everyone else to do our, our job for us. Uh, so once again, right, kind of a, another strike against, against priests in the way that we've gone about, uh, you know, building up parishes or at least deforming parishes to be what we would like them to be. And it's not that the lady shouldn't be doing anything, right? That's absolutely incorrect. Uh, but everyone has a role, right? And everything works best when we're fulfilling that role in society. Uh, so that's kind of my my first critique of, of Catholic culture. And I think that there has been a lot of regarding these roles within the church, uh, that intermingling uh, of roles that uh, creates even more confusion once you do. Well, is that my job or his job, her job? Shouldn't that be the priest? I don't know. He's not here, right? And it's like, well, if I did that in this instance, well, why can't I do it in this other one? So it, people can just get caught in their thinking and not understand you know, what's the heart of it? What, what, what is it really that the priest is supposed to do and that the people are supposed to do? For instance, uh, take one example, like extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. They are technically extraordinary, right? They are out of the ordinary. Uh, you might say that, you know, it's lay involvement and how great is that? Uh, but my question is sort of, I don't know how much we really think about this. Uh, what is the expense of that involvement, right? Uh, so our Lord told St. Peter, St. Peter, right, bishop, priest, first pope, he was an ordained minister. He had received holy orders from Jesus himself. And our Lord told St. Peter, feed my sheep, not once, not twice, but three times. Uh, and this was a command given to him because of his office, right? He sinned, of course, but right, it's also tied to his role as priest to feed Jesus's flock, to make sure that the people of God are built up and are working towards the Lord. This command is given by Christ to all priests. Jesus didn't command the crowds to, to do this. He didn't say, you know, go feed yourselves, right? It's not, not what our Lord said. It's not in the Bible. It was to the men who had been radically conformed to his ministerial priesthood that had received the sacrament of holy orders. Uh, and that order is still given by Jesus today to all of us who have been ordained priests right? Feed my sheep. And it's something that I as a priest take very seriously. We see sheep being fed, right, during the Holy Eucharist. Uh, and so that's, that's the priest role. So the priest is actually the ordinary 
minister of Holy Communion. It's his job in particular to feed his people the Holy Eucharist. Uh, the laity haven't been given the commission by Christ to do this. It is by a juridical allowance uh, under extreme circumstances by the bishop. So, um, you know, except when those little allowances, right, it's kind of like the key floor in the bar. Right? Well, extreme circumstances, well, maybe there's a thousand people that take a really long time. You know, okay, you know, the priest needs some help. Uh, but then what if it's a daily mass and there are a dozen people at daily mass? The priest really doesn't need help to distribute Holy Communion. Um, and if he's been given that commission by Christ to feed his sheep, uh, he should take that role on, you know, very seriously. He should grab it by both horns, right, and, and want to get out there and feed sheep, uh, God's sheep, and have that connection with the people uh, to be the spiritual father, to be the, you know, the, the breadwinner, so to speak, the provider uh, that God has chosen to work through to reach every single one of you. Uh, so let's say at the, um, the practice in a certain parish that that's been ignored for quite a few years. Uh, there, if you read the, the rubrics on what an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion is, you, you'll probably be very surprised at what you'll, you'll see. Uh, but you'll see that it really isn't meant to be a, a set job in the church, that it's meant to be temporary extreme circumstances. Uh, so let's say that that's, it's been this way in a parish for 60 years, and you know, Father, um, you know, Father, whoever he is, he retires. You know, happy retirement, Father. Thank you for all your work. We love you. And then a younger priest comes in, uh, one who's had you know seminary training recently, and he knows the law. He knows the reasons behind the law. He wants to do what Holy Mother Church wants him to do. And so let's say he tries to take steps there. He slowly reduces numbers of extraordinary ministers. He pairs down their schedule. Um, but let's say Betsy, I don't know if there is Betsy out there tonight. If you are, you know, no hard feelings. Uh, but let's say Betsy hears that extraordinary ministers uh, should be extraordinary, right? That they shouldn't be commonplace. And what happens if Betsy's never had her role explained to her? She's never understood really what an extraordinary minister was. She might feel angry when she gets the news that, you know, Father really doesn't need her to help out. She might feel betrayed or resentful. Uh, but if she understands what the new priest is saying, she might most of all, I think this underpins a lot, feel guilty about what she's been doing, that practice for the past 60 years, uh, thinking she's been doing something wrong, that she's been committing some sort of sin, uh, when this, right, it's not the case. The sin would be on the priest, his sin of ignorance, and not instructing the people, not doing what the, the church, the missal, the rubrics of the mass tell the priest to do. So for being a, a lazy shepherd and not listening to Jesus, uh, the, the priest would be the guilty one in this situation. And I think a lot of times it's hard for people to um, kind of separate themselves from that because we have this deep connection, right, as Catholics with each other in the faith and what we're doing, especially with the sacraments. And you can feel betrayed in a way when you hear something that's just completely different to what you've heard or different to what you've expected to, to hear. And can you see the predicament that many parishes find themselves in? Uh, they have pastors who feel like they can't be pastors because of the incorrect way things have been done. I know the, that famous phrase, oh, Father, we always did it this way, right? And the priest feels, well, somewhat locked in um, to that and at least should respect it because it has been here. Uh, but, you know, how much does he respect it? It's this question that shouldn't really, he shouldn't have to ask. He shouldn't have to try to figure out uh, how to move in this direction because it should have been done right from the beginning, right? Uh, it also can damage the priest 
because he doesn't feel like a father who can lead his people to Christ. Uh, or uh, he accepts an action that he knows to be sinful. Many times, um, you know, priests get put in a position, right? They're, they're the father, they're, they're to lead, and then they get there and there's all this red tape around all these different situations in the parish. And the bishop installs the priest as a pastor and he says, lead your, peace to, lead your people to heaven, right? Be Christ to them. Like, let Christ shine through you and let them all know who the Lord is. And as he starts to look at the parish and what they need, he finds obstacles to this mission. Uh, and he finds that he can't do what he thinks he should do. And this doesn't, uh, you know, bode well for, for him, for his masculinity, for his idea of, of what a leader should be doing, right? And if bishops wonder why there's a lack of a cultural vocations in the diocesan priesthood, it could simply be that diocesan priests aren't allowed to act as fathers as much as they should be. Uh, and that's not appealing to a generation of young men, young men who, who, right, who want to fulfill that role, who want to, to know that they're doing something that you know, God has chosen this man to do in, in the church. More men are actually joining religious life now than the diocesan priesthood, because at least in religious life, uh, they can count on fraternal support. They're all in that together, and they have the priests and brother and well brothers that they can go to, talk to, uh, share in this common mission together. Because uh, not all priests rely on the support of their bishops; they can't always count on that, unfortunately. Uh, so this is another problem amongst the clergy, where the bishop isn't seen so much as a father, but more as uh, the role of an adversary to the priest, uh, whether the bishop intends this or not. It's, you know, sometimes uh, leadership positions, they can make a decision, and it has unintended, un unintended consequences, right? And so I think many times it isn't malicious, but uh, it's still, it's setting up this, this tension in the current priest survey that we had. It found that the bishops, they thought they were killing it. Bishops thought they were doing a great job uh, at everything. But uh, hearing the priest side of that, you know, how, what did they think of their bishops? They, they felt distance there. Right? They felt that the bishop really wasn't taking a fatherly role to his priests. Uh, and so that was kind of like a little um, sliver uh, of just kind of this disconnect that can happen uh, amongst people. Uh, talking with priest friends across the United States, many bishops tend to be interested in the status quo, and they see rocking the boat as a bad thing, even if the boat needs to be rocked, even if you know you can shake things up a little bit uh, and give people something a little bit different uh, than what they're used to. Uh, the bishops, of course, can rock the boat if they think that it's something important enough, but uh, many times they want the situations to remain the same, uh, even if they're unhealthy, and even if that kind of butts up against the priest's good judgment, where the priest, you know, he might have a goal for the parish, he might try to work towards that goal, uh, but then, right, if that's at odds with what the bishop wants, then, well, it ends there. Uh, so that might be new information to some of you, how all of that uh, happens, but I think it's a good reminder to all of you how much we priests and how much our bishops need your prayers and need your support. Right? Praying for bishops and priests, uh, it shouldn't be an option, right? It should be mandatory for every single one of us uh, because, you know, you, you the people, um, you're relying on us to prepare your, your souls for heaven. Uh, you're relying on us for spiritual guidance. Uh, and we, we need your prayers for that, to be the, the priest that Jesus Christ wants us to be uh, for each and every one of you.
It also seems like the response of bishops is a little bit behind the comment after votes have been taken on a certain political issue, uh, you know, after the, their voices can actually make a difference. Like when election time rolls around, it should be then that the bishops are speaking out. It should be then that they're giving us guidance on, you know, what are at least at least the candidates not to vote for, right? Um, uh, the ones to stay away from, uh, because that's when you can affect this change in the law. You can get in uh, good lawmakers who are pro-life, good lawmakers who respect freedom of religion, right? Good lawmakers who respect you as a person and want to help you flourish, that believe that government should serve you and not the other way around, right? The time to do that, to make that change, is before an election, uh, not afterwards, not after all the votes have been counted. Our bishops, they do an awful lot, right? Don't get me wrong. Uh, but the question is, right, uh, how much of what we're doing is, is spinning our wheels and how much is it actually uh, affecting a good change um, of what they want to do? So uh, or there are other times, too, where the ball gets past them and then they just kind of drop the ball. Uh, for instance, you might have remembered some years back, there was a euthanasia bill that was voted down in Massachusetts. Uh, it came very, very close, scary close to getting passed, uh, but it was just shot down. The Archdiocese of Boston spent an awful lot of money on ads and campaigns to get public awareness up about it. But even with all of that, right, just barely, barely uh, avoided having euthanasia legal here in Massachusetts. Uh, and ask yourself, well, how much have you heard of euthanasia since that, right? Have you heard it from the pulpits? Have you heard it like official teaching from the church? Right? The church is sort of, the hierarchies kind of dropped the ball uh, in this field, you know, where we should be uh, looking towards the next time that this bill rears its ugly head, right? And be prepared for that and get more people aware of the evil of this, uh, you know, not respecting life till its natural end and the dignity of the human being to die, you know, with their mental faculties and reason, uh, right? Instead of doing that, we're just sort of, I don't know, sitting there, maybe we rejoice in the, in the victory when it happens. Uh, but it's, I see this as a problem in teaching, right? We need to be taught more at regular intervals to get a little, you know, get caught up to speed on our Catholic faith uh, and, and make sure that we're always learning more. Going to the next level of hierarchy uh, that can influence Catholics, uh, we don't really have anywhere to turn but the Pope, uh, and simply said that the, he's the Pope and that we can't judge him uh, in the train of thought of St. Paul, right? If we judge him, then we're not under him, then we're his judge, uh, and we're not the judges of the highest uh, juridical authority on earth. Uh, the dignity and the office of St. Peter are great goods, and we, we should never undermine those. Um, if there is confusion with his words and actions, I, I give the same advice to everyone. Uh, before you react, wait for clarification, right? Wait till you know what it is that the, the, the Pope is saying or what a document says. Uh, don't go jumping to conclusions. Don't listen to the media. The media likes saying things that, that we don't actually believe, right? They want to make the story. Remember that, uh, right? But wait for there to be clarification. And if the clarification ever comes, then, well, you know, take it for whatever it's worth, um, but it seems like, uh, yeah, there, there's this trend where, you know, people just take what the Pope says automatically or out of context, uh, and, and we, can't be, we can't be doing that. We have to uh, wait to hear what, what's actually being said before we make a judgment on it or start to, you know, put it into practice. Uh, otherwise, my advice regarding the Pope and what the Pope says and does is to pray for him, right? And that's, that's, that should be enough, because that's really all you can do. 
I tell people also to imagine that it was like 400 years ago. You knew we had a pope. You might have known his name. You loved him and you prayed for him, right? Um, make that a practice today in your own lives as well, because uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, the devil, especially uh, going up the hierarchy, the attacks get greater and greater on, on those with holy orders who are called to be holy themselves and lead God's people to heaven. I'm not saying ignore him. I'm just saying, you know, wait, you know, pump the brakes until we understand before we start jumping to conclusions and change, you know, everything that we do. Uh, also, I think another problem, uh, one of the biggest problems in the church, kind of all the uh, sinful stuff aside, right? I think ultramontanism is probably one of the biggest problems in the church right now. Uh, those who think the Pope can never be wrong, that every single, single thing that he says is binding all the time, and that he can just change church teaching whenever he wants, right? Ultramontanism, that the Pope is beyond the mountain, that he is untouchable. Uh, because if that was the case, if he really was, then one of the Protestants' complaints at the Reformation would actually have come true, that the Pope is a dictator, that he can do whatever he pleases. But that is not the case. Right? The Pope is always under tradition, uh, because the Pope has no power outside of tradition and, and the teaching of Jesus Christ, both of which have been handed on to him, and both of which he is called to protect in turn. So we've taken a brief view of, of secular culture and, and what surrounds us, and how it's encroaching upon our Catholic culture. And we've gone over the hierarchy in the church uh, and some modern currents and patterns uh, that we see in the, in the, the ranks of the church. Uh, but now let us turn to the laity. Right? The laity are the members of the church who are baptized, believe and profess uh, the teaching of Jesus Christ, participate in the sacraments, and acknowledge the Pope and other lawful pastors of the church. Uh, but they are those who have not received the sacrament of holy orders, and they have not been made. They have not made vows or joined a religious order. That's kind of a, a synthesis of two definitions together: uh, what the laity is and what they are not. Right? The laity who has been baptized, who who believe in the church, who uphold it, uh, but at the same time, right, haven't uh, haven't committed themselves to uh, religious vows or religious order. Uh, since the church is Catholic, we see the laity taking on. Uh, Roles that have many different shapes and different forms. Uh, we see them existing within all cultures uh, with a variety of looks, styles, ways of life, jobs. St. Ignatius of Antioch coined the term Catholic in his letter to the Smyrnans, for he said how being a Catholic did not mean giving up your, our identity in Christ, uh, but it meant living in the world and taking up these different roles and bringing Christ, the living Christ, to all of those different roles that we, we take in our own lives. Uh, so the Catholic could really look like almost all things in a society. The really Catholic could take up really any role in society, but they always brought Christ with them wherever they were. Uh, that was a big takeaway of St. Ignatius. A scripture passage on my mind as of late, and it's kept appearing and reappearing to me over the past month. It's at least been like a couple times a week I come across it. Um, and it's in chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Galatians, verse 20. And in it he says, And I live now, now not I, but rather Christ that liveth in me. And that I live now in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself for me. And then combine this with the gospel we heard just two weeks ago. Uh, you are the light of the world, so let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Right? We 
as individuals, we're not the light. Christ is our light, right? And letting our light shine is letting Christ shine within the world, letting Christ live within us, as St. Paul said in the Galatians. Uh, that little verse from Galatians is the linchpin. It's the key to the moral life, right? If you want to live in a moral way, you want to live and let Christ out. You want to live as Christ does and how he wants you to live. If you, it's also the key to the prayer life, right? It's not our prayer. It sort of is, right? But it's really Christ's prayer. That's the best prayer that we can make. That's why the Mass is the strongest prayer that we have as Catholics, because it is Christ's prayer to God the Father on the cross, right? And we hook into that, right? The priest, when the first prayer, um, like specific prayer for the Mass, the priest says is called the collect. Uh, and we get the first definition of that word is actually a prayer. It's the first prayer of the Mass. But the priest is collecting all of your intentions in the Mass and offering them up to God the Father in heaven, right? He's acting in persona Christi in the Mass. He is Christ's instrument, and he is bringing all your prayers to God the Father in that moment, right? So we as individuals, right? Remember, we are not the light of the world insofar uh, as, you know, it's just us. But insofar as we bring, we bring Christ, right? Christ is our light. Christ makes all things light, uh, and that's who we're trying to bring out. Because uh, there is that very modern, it's very selfish way of interpreting it. You know, it's me, it's my light, right? Aren't I special? But that's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, he's saying, you know, isn't he special? Isn't the Lord special? And would that everyone would believe in him and accept his grace and his love and his mercy? Uh, so uh, the end of that, that also gives it away, right? The whole point is that the Father might be glorified. It doesn't end in us. That, that scripture passage does not begin with us and does not be, end with us. It begins and ends in Christ, as we should do all things in our own life. Everyone is called to follow God's will. Uh, reading more of Galatians, we find it's that uh, in sacrificing our own will, in being crucified with Christ, that that's the best way we can let Christ shine within the world. Uh, all of us Catholics becoming lenses for Jesus in a way. Right, bringing Christ the Savior to all of humanity, redirecting his light into all these different corners of society that need to know about him, that have been living in ignorance and in darkness, uh, who don't know about his salvific action upon the cross. And just as a side note, I sort of think that that might be why, uh, as Catholics, we're the largest Christian denomination, because of the Mass. The Mass is a sacrifice, and... We all know suffering in our lives, don't we? We all know sacrifice. The Mass is something, something that can touch us all. We look at our Eastern you know, Catholics, our Eastern brothers and sisters, and they have none of them have the Mass. They have the divine liturgy, right? They focus on the divinity of Christ, the glory of heaven shining down upon us. And, you know, and it's beautiful, and they have awesome vestments, and you're kind of hit with all sorts of gold and shiny things. You know, it's meant to overwhelm the senses, make you feel like you're in heaven. Uh, but the Mass, I think, it touches us a little bit more uh, because all of us go through hardships. And it's a reminder that Jesus went through worse than we did uh, and that he's here for us, that we can join into, into him and we can, uh, you know, all be together uh, in, in the Catholic faith. The laity are called to let Christ shine in the world through their actions, and they do this by staying in line with the church and her teachings. Uh, by fulfilling their role of physically building up the body of Christ, which is done by getting married and having children, uh, because more people in heaven means a bigger party, means more ways that we can celebrate God, more ways that we can rejoice in him uh, when there's more people in heaven to reflect the light of Christ. Uh, and they also, the laity, build up the, uh, 
build up the um, uh, the church by fulfilling their obligations that they have to you know Holy Mother Church herself, uh, not only regarding the sacraments but also the temporal needs of the church, uh, being providing for you know the church, providing for uh, you know your parish, and if they need something new, some you know like a door is falling down or whatever, providing for that temporal needs. Uh, it'd be nice if electricity didn't cost money, but it does. And, you know, and aren't we blessed to, to have that here today so we can have a talk at night, right? But those sorts of things, you know, and don't ever forget performing good works uh, as in the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Because uh, part of that too is that's the outreach. That's how we reach more people and let them know about the goodness of God. That, well, you know, if, if uh, one of us loves them in this life, think about how much more God loves them. Maybe they've never known love in their life, but by us giving them that work of mercy, that they can see, well, okay, I could be open to God's love now. And it could be a first step. So we should always be reaching out and, and trying to help others uh, and, and, and doing it in a faithful way. Uh, the last thing is to let yourself be led by the, the rightful pastors of the church. There are an awful lot of voices out there. Uh, and uh, one of my friends said he, he doesn't trust priests who are clamoring for a, a pulpit bigger than they are. Right? So you should try to uh, limit who you, uh, you go for. Don't try to look for um, uh, you know, some of these uh, speakers who you know, get on the national stage or it's all about YouTube views, that sort of thing. I, I always caution to be a little, little wary of, of those folks. Although uh, you, know, you, you organize some types of outreach you know, in your role, of laity by default is not one of leading the church. Uh, that's in general. Right? The laity, you participate in the kingship of Christ at baptism, but what is your kingdom? What is your kingship? It's your own body. It's your own life. Uh, all of a sudden, at baptism, you've been you know, rescued from the devil by our Lord. He no longer has a hold over you, and you have been given the kingdom of yourself right? to rule, to govern, to bring under reason. Right? That's the kingship uh, of the, the baptism that we have. Um, and so right, with that comes also leading uh, those in your life that, that you have to. It means leading a family, instructing your children in the faith, uh, you know, and, and governing them in the way that you have to. Uh, the ministerial priesthood is different from that. I have the baptismal priesthood, right, and baptismal kingship, but there's also a little extra that comes with holy orders. And remember, this doesn't make any of you less, right? It doesn't make me more. It's just different roles, right? And we all do the best when we fulfill the roles that God has given us. Uh, the laity take a support role, which looks uh, can look in so many different ways. Sometimes it's called for leadership, but uh, doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, oblige you. It's not really built in all the time. Uh, contrast this with the office of priest and bishop. You know, when a priest is ordained, we're called to do three things to sanctify, to govern, and to teach, right? Sanctify first to make you holy because, you know, the priest is best uh, suited to do that. Uh, hands can offer the sacrifice of the mass. They can bless you, right? But then also to, to govern you in the way of, you know, a pastor would, as a good shepherd would in, in leading you. Uh, we have an obligation to lead and direct the flock to heaven. And in my estimation, it seems like a lot of people really aren't happy with the role that they're in. They're in a support role. They want to be in a leadership role. In a leadership role, they'd rather have a support role. Right? But once again, be satisfied where you are. Try to live that out to the best that you can. 
there's a Dominican saint, Fra Escoba, uh, Brother Broom, and he was called that because he was always with his broom, you know, uh, uh, Brother Martin de Porras, and he would sweep the monastery, take very, very careful care with cleaning everything and what he did. And this man le- led a saintly life. This man led a saintly life, simply cleaning the monastery with his broom, doing everything that he did, even the smallest chore, for the love of God. And this was what led to his sanctification. We found in his life that all these miracles started to happen, these miraculous cures, all because of this man's holiness. And with seemingly something small, right? Cleaning the monastery doesn't seem like it should be that big of a deal. But uh, his sanctification, his way to heaven was filling out that role. Uh, and what a great job St. Martin did in doing that. We find this shirking away of responsibility ever since Adam and Eve and the fall of our first parents. Adam was right there. He saw what Eve was doing. He let her eat the fruit. And ever since then, it's been, or at least it seems like Eve has wanted to lead Adam. and Adam's wanted to just take the, the back seat, even though Adam was put in a leadership role and Eve was not. No one is happy with or wants to fulfill his or her roles. They all want someone else's and what they think is better. A detour back to our secular society. Transgenderism tries to convince our youth that they can switch roles whenever they want. This is a role reversal to its extreme, but it's a logical consequence of not taking up your cross daily and doing what God wants you to do. It's a consequence of not thinking that God exists, that he's made society with an order, that there's a hierarchy to things. Because when you lose that, you lose the the purpose of the structure. Uh, I'm surprised that, or it should be no surprise that we've seen a loss of the structure itself with transgenderism. They, they don't believe in a structure, even though it's it's obviously there. You can go and you can look at people's chromosomes and find out if they're a male or a female. If we're looking in life to see what we should do in the grand scheme of things, there's a minimum of two things that we can look at, and these will tell us what God wants us to do. The first is the commandments, and the second are the obligations of someone's state in life. You cannot become holy if you're not following God's commandments, the laws that he's given us for our own good that help us understand the purpose of human nature and to raise it up to greater heights with the Beatitudes. And you cannot become holy without fulfilling the obligations of your state of life. If you're a mom, you have to be the best mom possible. You can't uh, just abandon your children to go off to the cloister to become a nun. It's not what God... Uh, has designed you to do at this point in your life. You have to raise your children. And then perhaps consider that if uh, once your your husband passes away and you're you're single again, right? But you have to fulfill your obligations. What is it that you owe to other people in your life? What is it that you owe to God? Uh, and if you're not doing those things, then uh, you're, you're not going to be able to find what your purpose is or your purpose will become very blurry. Catholic culture... No one clamoring for a chance to lead others. After the example of our Lord, we should be searching for how we can serve others, but always with the intention of leading them to Christ. 
if you take that as your MO and put it into action, you will become a saint. You will strive to please God in all of your actions. A problem with our secular culture and one that has permeated into Catholic, uh, our secular culture and has permeated into our Catholic culture is the tendency to label people, which isn't necessarily bad, but the label is the first step to writing people off. It's the first step of dehumanizing them in a certain sense. Uh, at the Holocaust, what did Hitler and what did the, the, he have the Nazi party do? They relabeled the Jewish people, right? They gave them uh, numbers in the consecration camp concentration camps, uh, they no longer had names. They were simply numbers. They were dehumanized. They put labels on them. Uh, and people like putting labels on, on people because then they think, well, I can know their intentions. There's some comfort in that. And it's a little anti-intellectual because that comfort is, well, they, they trick themselves and they're thinking they know everything they don't need to know about a person. And because everything a person does is, is going to be under that label, and they don't have to think any more about who it is in front of them. We can label actions, but we should be very, very cautious about labeling people. In wider Catholic culture, there are these ideas about what labels mean. Uh, just a few of them to go through. Uh, traditionalists. These people tend to be the ones who think that Vatican II was a mistake, and this varies in extremes, of course, from thinking it was just a bad idea to being flat-out heretical. But what usually happens is that label is used against the person. They might look at a traditionalist and what he said, and they might say to themselves, well, he's too traditional. Everything he said is just tradition. He doesn't really believe in anything like the development of the liturgy. And then they just write off everything that the traditionalist says, even if he might be logically correct, even if it's in the realm of fact and not opinion. Uh, but so many times, label, labels work against us. And they prevent us from seeing the individual person in front of us. For all the critiques of traditionalists, there's a group of people uh, that they seem to be able to reach much easier than any others, and those are sede vacantists. Uh, sede vacantists are technically those people who aren't part of the church since they've left. Uh, they don't think they think that the office of the pope has been vacant for some time now, and they can go back. A lot of them go back to Pius XII. Some of them keep going back even further and further, depends on what they're reading and how much they really want to think about their situation. But without the Pope, they have no union. But what is it that appeals to them about Catholicism? It's the traditional Latin Mass. It's a way to, it's an inroad to bring them back into the Christ's fold. So we should be very cautious about uh, just dismissing traditionalists altogether because there are still people out there that this appeals to, that, that type of liturgy appeals to, uh, and that intellectually can, can take on some of these problems. Another label is mainstream conservative Catholics. These are Catholics who see themselves as being traditional and have saints like Pope John Paul II uh, and or popes like Benedict XVI as their heroes, all post-Vatican II. They see Vatican II as not being heretical in any way, but that those who interpret Vatican II in a heretical way, that they're, they're the ones that are misusing the council, that they shouldn't be using it in that way. This label gets less flack uh, because, as they call themselves, they're, they're mainstream. A, a lot of people fall into this group. And if someone wants a promotion, they, of course, side with those in power. Granted, neither is Pope anymore, but impact can still certainly be felt in the church. And there's a lot of nostalgia uh, about these uh, recent popes. Then there are progressive Catholics 
who have a different ordering of their priorities. So whatever they put first, they think that they can sort of change everything else, doctrine, morals, teaching, dogma, scriptures. It's all up for grabs. As long as it fits, they can fit it to be whatever their goals are. So with a lot of progressives, you see that what they think is most important is being nice. Uh, and they think that there's really only one heresy out there, and that's calling people, uh, labeling someone as a heretic. Uh, so, of course, they'll be able to twist teaching. They'll be able to twist scriptures uh, to try to support their view that we should just be nice, that Jesus really didn't die for our sins, or you know, whatever it is along those lines. That would be an extreme example. But uh, you, you can see this play out in the way that they talk with others, they evangelize. And that's also on a continuum. That progressives can be uh, sort of all over the place, um, just basically by design of, of, of what they believe in that restructuring of goods. Uh, but the, the ones that seem to be kind of the, you can label them the easiest, and that they all fit into a group fairly neatly are the mainstream conservative Catholics. They all follow a, a similar sort of idea, even if they don't get it, the, the whole picture, they don't understand tradition, they don't, don't understand where we're supposed to go, uh, some of them. Uh, they still want reverence. They still want our Lord to be loved. And, and I think that's one of the issues is that all three of these ways that I just mentioned, all three of these groups of people might just want the Lord to be loved as much as possible, but they've chosen different means to get there. Right? So we have to be able to figure out what it is that we want to happen and what are the best goals, what are the best ways to accomplish this. The labels that get placed on people in our Catholic culture can definitely cause division, or at least the labels force people into one grouping all the time. And we put people in these camps, and at, at times the labels are deserved, and they help identify their general thoughts, but to condemn the person, that's not what we are able to do. We can denounce what a person says, but we cannot condemn them as individuals. And even in the spheres I listed above, there's usually a, a blurry line. So a priest might consider himself traditional. He might actually be ignorant of what tradition has done for centuries, like let's say in the liturgy. And what the priest is really after is reverence. And he doesn't know better, so he really fits sort of the mainstream conservative group a little bit better. So he's technically not traditional, uh, but he, he leans even maybe a little bit more towards progressive. Uh, but he prioritizes liturgy even though he's not really aware of uh, the reasons why he's doing what he's doing or what his actions mean in the liturgy. So he might see himself as uh, being more traditional, even though in reality he's probably promoting some progressive ideas and doesn't know it. Right? So there's sort of a blurry line there. You know, what, what have you read? What do you know? Uh, and it, it can be very difficult to, to pinpoint where someone is. Or Let's go with uh, a layperson. Perhaps a layperson wants the church to be built up here on earth, which, yes, right, this is good. This is what we want. We should all want. But that means that we, but the means that they've chosen to do so might promote being nice instead of the counter secular message that, that all the gospels contain. They want the church to thrive, but they've selected an improper way to do so, or at least a less effective means to accomplish what they want. We want to see good fruit from what we do. Uh, not pour out vast amounts of effort and money for little to no payoff. Take, for example, a modern author, um, or 
speaker, Matthew Kelly, he's written many books under the guise of promoting Catholicism. The issue is if you actually read them, they're no better than the self-help books that you find in Barnes & Noble, for they center on the individual and not on Jesus Christ. Remember St. Paul to the Galatians, it should be Christ that lives within us and so gives us life. The so-called best version of yourself, as Kelly has trademarked, is misleading since it begins and ends with the self. Uh, it, you're trying to think of the way you want to be, right? How do you want to, to see yourself, to, to present yourself to others and, and to get out there and do evangelization when you're not asking, well, what, what version does God want me to be of myself? How do I let Christ's light shine through me? Uh, that's, that's the question we should be asking ourselves. Our, our model should all be Christocentric, not centered on the individual. Our transformation in Jesus uh, is so important. Uh, we need to ask, how do I let Christ live through me? Uh, we are not the template. We don't pull our goals out of the, these fanciful parts of our brain. Uh, our goals always have to be grounded in the Lord, and they have to be holy, uh, and they have to have the, the one end goal, the point of it all, which is, which is reaching heaven and being with God. When we get into what I call the, the label thing, we start taking our focus off Jesus and putting it on ourselves. It becomes a game like transgenderism. Well, you know, I, I was a, a, you know, a modern, uh, conservative, uh, liberal, but now I, I think that I'm really more leaning more towards a neoconservative, uh, semi-liberal, right? It, it sounds very much like the, the transgenderism that we have going on and people who want to be able to relabel themselves and to put themselves into a group. And then, you know, you put yourself into a group, kind of like choosing a baseball team. You might choose a baseball team. You automatically have their rivals, their adversaries, the team that you're just supposed to dislike uh, because your, your favorite team has always disliked the other ones. There's been this rivalry. Uh, it's sort of like that with labels. They can, they can make you think that you have to act a certain way towards others. Once again, ignoring the individual in front of you. Label actions, if they're clear, but we should hesitate to label people unless the church has made an official pronouncement upon them. Catholic culture uh, among religious communities is as varied as the communities themselves. So we've gone over, uh, we've gone over secular culture. We've gone over uh, Catholic culture in terms of the the clergy and the hierarchy, the laity, and now we're turning towards uh, religious. So it's attracting many youth to religious communities is the fraternal support that they offer. Many men would be diocesan priests. Priests are attracted to religious life because it just looks better. They have the support of these other men who share in a, the same apostle. They have the same mission. They're going out together. They're working side by side. They're praying together. Uh, they're living in, in these communities. Um, and I'll, I'll just use... Uh, one example of what could happen if we just diversified in our own diocese a little bit more. So Our Lady of Chestahova in Turner's Falls is known as more of a traditional parish. It's small, but it's faithful. One of the critiques that some priests have of it is, well, if tradition is so good there, and if traditional in, traditionalism is supposed to be as good as they say it is, well, where are the vocations that have come out of it? What fruit is it bearing? I, I was curious about this. So I talked with the old pastor that was there. He was there for over two decades. The parish hasn't had 
just one or two vocations in his time and a little bit before. It's had about 30 of them, but they have all gone to religious life because they know they'd be unhappy in diocesan life. They've seen mass celebrated surrounded in surrounding parishes in our diocese. Uh, they've seen the liturgy and it doesn't appeal to them. It seems to be if, you know, I just talked about labels, but if it's a liturgy that's taking a lot of liberties within it and is more progressive, as we would say, uh, then that's not going to fit with the traditional mindset that thinks that what we did mattered before and that we should we should keep the good things going. But 30 vocations from one parish, none of them found their way into Springfield, and none of them found that Springfield, the way Springfield worshipped as a whole was appealing, and they all went elsewhere. But just imagine if there were other places, other parishes, that followed tradition more closely in their liturgies. I'm talking about a mix of parishes, and if we had that mix, we could support the spiritual needs of Catholics everywhere. If these young men could have gotten a good parish where they could be a priest in a way that's meaningful to them, which just happened to be traditional, then we could have had possibly 30 more priests here in the Diocese of Springfield. So the possible 20 retirements over the next five years in our 70-something active parishes that we have could be a whole lot less threatening if our numbers were a little bit bigger. And my guess is that our morale, morale would be better as well. Instead of focusing most parishes, or forcing most parishes to celebrate Mass in a progressive way, uh, to looking at celebrating in ways that haven't been done in Catholicism's past, if the diocese had a mix of parishes, then we could have saved more vocations for our own diocese. The religious communities are also appealing because they have a clear identity. The ones that are thriving are the ones who could kept their traditional habits. Number one, they, they look the best. Number two, people can clearly see and understand who they are, including the religious themselves. They're marked, right? They're marked as separate from the world because they are. They've radically uh, given themselves and their lives up for Christ. And that habit is a reminder of that to the people around them and themselves. Habits help a person become part of, uh, see their identity, right? And they help first outwardly. But then that can transfer inwardly, right? The, the, the simplicity of the habit, uh, the, the make of the habit, it should all inwardly tra transform the religious uh, to be more in line with the, the spirituality of the founder and the spirituality of their apostolate that they're going out there and doing. The splintering of the discipline of theology, I think, is also to blame for a loss of Catholic culture. Many current-day documents coming out of Rome are not like they used to be, which was, once upon a time, short and exact. Many that we see now are quite lengthy, they take a long time to say anything, and even if the theology is good, they can cause confusion, because instead of clarifying, if someone's trying to keep track of all of these things that are said, and the length alone it makes, makes everything blurry and confused. Each separate discipline in theology uh, doesn't want to cooperate with the others, and they want to have a monopoly over each of their sections of theology. So, for instance, biblical theologians might not want to let a moral theologian use a certain passage in the Bible uh, to support uh, a moral claim, even though that passage might have been used for centuries. Biblical theologians say, you know, mine. Nope, nope. We use the historical critical method, and this is really what it means. All right, this is what we have here. 
Uh, that might have been the way it was interpreted before, but you can't say that now. And so the biology is more concerned about uh, placating some central body of academia by removing the spiritual aspects of sacred scripture than they are about the unity of truth. Uh, Jesus Christ is uh, the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. The truth, one singular truth. And theology seems to have just gone off in different directions, biblical, moral, spiritual, dogmatic, um, the list keeps going on and on, and they all have their own fields, and they all seem to be doing their own thing, separate from each other. Uh, there's a lack of communication, and there's a, a lack of clarity on important matters of the faith. This does not help our situation. It leads people being forced into to take sides when there have been no lines that have been drawn, or we, we can't really clearly see the lines. Many folks uh, flock to traditionalism because of the clarity that we once had in the church and in church documents. And there's comfort in that clarity. Uh, but now all we see is these opinions. One person says this, and well, I don't like that opinion, so I'm going to say this other thing. Why does each of them say that opinion? Well, they really don't know all the time. Uh, and, and so there's, well, they just oppose each other because they say different things. And that's not helpful in theology. Uh, we see the, the trickle-down effect. If they're saying that in academia, well, that's what a priest is taught when he goes to seminary, and if the priest doesn't keep reading, if the priest doesn't keep learning, then that's the only thing he knows. And then if you go even beyond that, and, and you look towards what the priest then starts preaching, right, then he's going to be preaching this division. We're not going to see Christ clearly. We're not going to see the unity in the Lord, uh, the one Lord, the one God. So everything that I've talked about, all the examples that I've used, it doesn't necessarily apply here to this diocese or this parish, but it could. We should be open. We should be open to questioning uh, where, where is it that we, we see these things happening? Where is it that there are problems? Where is it that there are issues? And let's take an honest look at it. If these are trends that a country priest like me can pick up on, then they must be pretty widespread uh, enough to be affecting more parishes, more dioceses, more bishops than we care to admit. Sort of like a good confession, I think one of the uh, one of the cures to this is honesty and humility, especially before the Lord, because uh, it's the Lord who's going to get us out of the trouble that we find ourselves in. If the bishops in our country take an honest look at the situations they find themselves in, if they look at what is bearing good fruit in ministry, then they technically should be supporting that, right? They should, where they see the Spirit working and growing, they should uh, make sure that the Spirit continues to work and grow. And if the Holy Ghost is prompting them to change something, to make something good, to make uh, something better, or if it's returning from tradition, whether it's, you know, taking up another practices, practice that's, that's very beneficial and is encouraging the faith, then they should do that, right? They shouldn't be afraid of making these changes if we find that what we're doing is not currently working. If they, however, decide to keep the status quo, the same parish structures, and they prepare for downsizing, while not changing anything, then we should expect the numbers in the pews will keep shrinking, right? So all we, they would have done is they might have combined CCD programs or confirmation classes from a whole county into one place. But guess what? It's, the program will probably just keep getting smaller. Uh, even though the numbers that first year might look really good, uh, we, we should expect more of the same if we keep doing the same things. 
I think the first step of, of honesty and humility is taking responsibility. Ever since the fall of our first parents, we as humans have become very good at pointing fingers and rationalizing instead of pointing at COVID or whatever else as being the reason for all things bad. If we instead looked at ourselves and took some of that responsibility, then we could start making changes and begin moving forward. We need to move forward to get to heaven, not retreat in our, into our shells forever to stay. In short, there is a lot of confusion in Catholic culture, more blurry lines than there need to be, and a general lack of knowledge of the faith uh, among every single stratosphere of Catholic culture. I wanted to make this talk a more positive one, and I tried. I really tried. But when you get out there and start looking at weighing the evidence and thinking about what you've seen uh, in society uh, across uh, fellow workers across different countries in the world and talking with other brother priests in different dioceses, uh, I find us clerics to be mostly to blame for a lot of this, and I apologize for that. Uh, other statistics, right? Average weekend mass attendance across our diocese is down 42% from right before the, the shutdowns from 2015 to now. We're down 42%. If all the priests in our diocese retired who could, who were eligible, we would lose at least 20 priests in active ministry in the next five years. Now, just a reminder that we only have about 70 parishes here in the diocese, and the majority of these have only one priest. What the parish structure of the Diocese of Springfield will look like, and the decisions that have to get made to get there, those are all above my pay grade. But to anyone who has eyes that see, we know for certain that something will have to give somewhere. Uh, when I return to you next month, I want to go over strategies that we, both clergy and laity, can do together so that we can jumpstart our Catholic culture here in North Adams and beyond. We should never be a people without hope. Jesus said that he would be with us until the end of time. He promised St. Peter that the gates of hell will never prevail against his one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. In these two things, we should take comfort and be strengthened to not give up our struggle to bring Christ to the whole world. When Christ wins, all of those who are with him win. Right? We have our work cut out for us, but what a great work it will be if we do it for the glory of the Father. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Amen.